introduce myself. All right. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm recording. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Introduce yourself, Sam. Hi. Uh, my name is Sam Ravens. Uh, I graduated from the University of South Florida in 2014. Uh, and pretty much up until last year, I was working in politics in media strategy, which is uh, a lot of digital advertising, social media advertising, a little bit of copywriting here and there. Uh, but it was really interesting working at sort of the the edge of sort of the blend, so to speak, of working in politics and digital advertising where you were trying to either persuade voters or mobilize voters or persuade people of particular you know interests, usually on behalf of labor unions or nonprofits. Uh, but in August of 2020, yes, I, uh, I started a, a Master's of Art program at the Maryland Institute College of Art and Graphic Design. Uh, what really prompted that was I noticed a lot of companies uh, say they're data-driven. Uh, we're a data-driven company, and what I've come to find is two things. One is many companies don't visualize the information or visualize data in such a way that it's really actionable. I really firmly believe that there's a difference between an observation and an insight. Uh, and I've done a lot of reading into the differences between those two, but if I had to sum it up, an observation is noticing when one thing does better than, say, another. You know, uh, ad A performed better than ad B based on X numbers. That's an observation. That's relatively easy and relatively quick to make. But an insight takes a lot of people and takes a lot of time to shape strategy over time. We notice that ad A performed better than ad B because we have tested copy Z versus copy Y, and we paired it with image 1A versus image 1B. And so teams have strategically worked together over time to test certain things. We started to see patterns in numbers and kind of reflect that, and that has allowed us to make changes in our overall strategy and our overall messaging to sort of shift that course. Uh, and I noticed a lot of companies weren't using data that effectively, and they weren't making decisions based off that data. Data-driven has become one of those business speak words that uh, companies like to use in proposals or pitches, sort of like um, uh, synergy. We work synergistically, so we're using multiple people from multiple teams to work cohesively to have better results than we otherwise would in siloed teams. It's, it's sort of one of those business speak words that uh, people use a lot, but it's not really actionable. Um, but what I've also really appreciated about graphic design and almost the, the intersection of graphic design and communication as a whole, since my academic background, my USF degree was in technical writing, uh, is that it's communication. Visual and graphic design is largely visual communication. There are other ways to communicate that information, but largely speaking, it's, it's visual. Uh, and writing is similar, um, but it, it's mostly through uh Right, uh, or you know, now as a graphic designer, it's typography. Type on a page, on a website, on a billboard. Uh, it's really important to communicate information. That was also really important in politics, uh, and that's and this is my own personal opinion. This is, this is sort of where I feel is, is the difference between art and design. Okay. Uh, art can largely be interpretive, mm -hmm. uh, or it may exist in a very specific space and time it's not sort of widely accessible in that regard but design you are trying to communicate a message to your audience or to your viewer uh and it, it should be more accessible it's not a specific siloed circumstance uh i think that was a little more ranty than what you were looking for but i hope that answers your question no 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 that was that was perfect i really i like your answer um 
now that I realize that you have a blend of like design and communication background, um, I'm just curious, what's something about, about you that most, that most people familiar with your work wouldn't know? Uh, that is a great question. The thing is, is like I, I'm largely a very open and honest individual. Uh, I, I tend not to hide things very easily, and when people ask me questions, I try to give but a more than honest answer. Um, Would you say that transfers over into your work? Largely speaking, yes. Uh, and especially with my own thoughts and feelings on my work. Uh, and I'm a new graphic designer. Uh, I don't have, I don't come from a visual design background uh, like many individuals do. So trying to navigate this and learn this, uh, particularly in a remote environment. Um, my program, you know, back in August, just a few weeks before the program started, uh, we were told initially that it would be a hybrid model, that there would be some classes online and some classes would be in person, and then three weeks before the semester started, it transferred to entirely online. Uh, and trying to work collaboratively and learn from the other designers in my program and learn from the instructors from my program, uh, trying to do this all online has proved tremendously difficult. Uh, something I've really learned about myself um, is that I'm, I'm a tremendously conversational person the interactions I have with people really do help shape my work and getting that feedback and getting the, the, the feedback loop of uh, I sort of reach a stage in my work where I don't, I'm not really sure how to best move forward or uh, which color palette is clicking or which typeface is sort of subtly communicating the aesthetic I'm going for. And so by talking with other people and getting their feedback, uh, it either strengthens my argument of, of, or strengthens my decisions, or it gives me another perspective on how I can better do that. Maybe there's another another color I could try, or another typeface, or maybe the layout is is you know create confusion versus clarity, or maybe uh, there are other choices in design I should try. So I say that there's things that you know I, that people don't necessarily know about me because I'm I'm just so uh, curious about others' opinions for better or worse. Uh, but also seeking feedback from others to help strengthen my work. Okay, okay. So you would say that um, working as a graphic designer is something that people might not know about you is that you actually appreciate, like in-person um, collaboration. I would say that. And honestly, just as you said, I, I think that there's a number of people that also don't know that I've, I'm shifting into graphic design. Um, I recognize that there's a lot of people, particularly for graphic design, it is so visual. Um, a lot of people do their own sort of personal marketing or, or marketing themselves and branding themselves in such a digital format. And I, I'm not as active on social media. I'm active in the sense that I consume content digitally, uh, but I'm still trying to put more of my own work out there. And I'm trying to overcome that personal fear that I have uh, of how people feel about my work. But instead of recognizing that, even though I'm still beginning, uh, because I am beginning, it will get better. It'll get better over time, and I should have the self-confidence to share my work online so that people say, oh, yeah, Sam, he's gotten into graphic design, and he's getting better at it. Uh, so that's probably the best answer to your question, that most people don't know that I'm getting into graphic design. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. That totally makes sense. Um, what advice would you give to somebody pursuing a career path similar to your own? Uh, another thing about me is I, I have a sense of humor that some might not agree with my initial joke is I can say don't do it uh, but the more truthful answer is um, have faith 
Uh, and and uh, trust yourself and trust your self-worth. It can be really, really challenging to overcome that inner monologue when you're doing something uncomfortable. Because when it's uncomfortable, you don't want to do it. And yeah. it's very easy to tell yourself to stop. And overcoming that is, is probably the hardest thing. So if you're, if you're you know, shifting careers a little bit or if you're trying to do something new, it will take time. Uh, there are a lot of people that are fast learners. I'm just not one of them. Uh, and I'm having to sort of struggle and fight and wrestle with this uh, to get over that inner monologue, to trust myself and to trust those around me. So when they do get feedback, I'm not just telling myself, oh, they're just saying that. But no, they're, they are in my corner. They're on my side. Uh, they're not against me. Uh, they never have been. And they're not just saying things just to say them. It's, it's not because they uh, they believe in me for our, either our friendship or our relationship or our connection. Um, but it's to, to keep moving forward in a progressive path. I, I don't remember who it was. I, I, I either want to attribute, attribute this to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, where I think it's it, it's along the lines of never shame anyone for how slow their progress is, so long as that they are still making progress. Uh, and I think that's 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 really important. That as long as you are taking steps to get better, and it might not always be linear, it might not always be a straight path in a progressive format, but as long as you are taking the steps to uh, better yourself, better your work, learn more, and trying to just the effort to improve. It doesn't necessarily have to be improvement. As long as you are trying to uh, get better at what it is you are trying to do, or, or better understand or learn more about it, uh, you are improving your work and you are improving yourself in this field or in your line of work. Uh, and I would argue that that is probably the most important thing than necessarily speaking the quality of your work. Because as long as you're trying to improve it, it will over time, just for sheer practice, get better. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that's part of the creative process, just um, expecting failure up front. And then um, as you work through um, the tough uh, patches, you become better over time. And um, that's just, that's normal for anything. But I think it's something we have to remember as people who are uh, creative, is that we're not always going to be great at something the first time that we try it. Yeah, a lot of it feels like shooting from the hip. We don't know if it's going to hit the target or not. But, yeah. Uh, if you take a lot of shots, eventually something's going to land. Yeah, and it'll start to feel automatic. Once you get really good at doing something that's creative in nature, you can kind of like create something on the drop of a hat. But when you first start learning how to do something, it's difficult. Yeah, another one of my favorite quotes, and I, I don't remember who this was. I might, I'm inclined to say Paula Cher. She's a, a famous graphic designer and a, a poster designer. I could be wrong, and I apologize if I misattribute this. Uh, but she said, you know, I, I made this drawing in 30 seconds, but it took me 30 years how to make it in 30 seconds. And I think that really speaks to the commitment and perseverance and sort of endurance that uh, if I were to make a drawing now, it could take me uh, hours. Um, but within a practice, eventually, I could also make that drawing in 30 seconds. Yeah, I feel like I've heard that quote somewhere. It, it has a lot of truth to it. I mean, that's that's the way the world works. If you learn something new, at first it's always difficult. But then once you get used to it, you can start creating things quicker or, or doing the thing that you sucked at faster. Yeah, I, I do have a lot of respect for people who have a natural talent for things that uh, they have either found their calling or they, they naturally can do it very quickly and it doesn't take them a lot. Um, that, of course they put in effort, of course they put in time, but they just pick it up. They had a natural affinity for it. But And this is my own personal opinion, is I have more respect for the people that overcame their sort of internal challenges that maybe this felt 
unnatural to them. Um, and for me, I initially, I mean, for the very, for the longest time, I didn't think of myself as a creative individual. But I think what's more important is that there are ways to practice creativity. There are ways to practice creative thinking and ideation and exhausting your ideas beyond just the first couple, but really starting to think through things to see what other options are out there, what other ideas, how can I better tease this idea out, or what other forms or mediums can I work with to better communicate this. And so, you know, also to the people that might not think of themselves as creative or creative writers or creative individuals, I think it's more important to practice creative thinking, to sort of spread, to, to really pull the ideas sort of out of them, to not settle for the first idea that comes to them, but really pursue it beyond what they thought was possible to really expand their ideas and their horizons for for what the ideas might have. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Sam, um, from the research I've done, I think every single person who's been successful um, didn't necessarily have, like, a natural talent. Like, at some point, all of them had to work extremely hard and put in a lot of hours of practice and, you know, making mistakes and then rectifying those mistakes and um, over and over again before they actually found success. I think there's, like, this myth that there's, like, natural-born natural, natural um, success that, like, people just have this, like, affinity and then it just takes them where they need to go. I mean, it's, it's true that, like, you could have, like, a natural inclination to do something, but if you don't practice it, you're not going to become the best at what you do. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's, uh, I would argue what separates those successful individuals from those that might be less successful is, is they might quit. Uh, but those that can persevere through it and fight through it and understand that this might not feel good right now, but if I keep at it and I can keep working at it, that will change. Uh, and I think that's really – and I, I honestly, I think that also applies to fields outside of, uh, you know, quote-unquote creative fields. Uh, it took me a long time, and particularly when I was working in advertising. I never considered myself a data guy. I never considered myself a numbers kind of person. I was one of those individuals in high school that would tell myself I hate math. Mm -hmm. And I think what's more important is to say that I haven't learned it yet, or I haven't put the time or effort to learn it or understand it. So now I say, like, I don't, uh, you know, and I would argue, like, I don't hate math. I don't hate numbers. Uh, but there are ways that I can learn to work with it or understand it better that can make it work better for me. Uh, and in a very similar way, like, a lot of people might say, I am not creative. But really what you should be telling yourself is I haven't practiced creating I haven't practiced uh, visual design or exhausting my ideas or thinking of new ways to visualize or communicate the information of trying to give it a message of trying to get out there. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we're all human beings, so we all have like an objective and subjective side. It's just what we choose to, I guess, bring out, you know, what we choose to exercise. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's all a muscle and it all takes practice and training. Yep. So... When did you become passionate? When did you first become passionate about your chosen field? That is a good question. Uh, it's fascinating uh, because, and it's, it's so, uh, we were, you know, we both went through the same technical writing course, and the fascinating thing I learned is that good technical writing is very frequently invisible. Uh, most people don't notice it when it's good. Mm -hmm. Most people tend to notice it more when it's not good. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say visual design is in a very similar situation where and this also applies to uh, user experience design, user interface design, a lot of visual communication. So when it's good, a lot of people, it just functions. And it functions in a way that is intuitive and it makes sense and it's clear to people who may or may not have 
uh, prior experience, either on that platform or on that website or with this piece of content, a lot of ways it's invisible. And so for me, a lot of it was invisible. It only stood out more when things didn't function the way I wanted it to. But more to your question, I would argue, it, it really became more important for me uh, a few years ago. This really was, I would say, uh, 2016, 2017, right around there. Um, working in campaigns, it became a little more obvious when campaigns were well-branded. When And it's fascinating, I would argue that uh, good graphic design never won an election for an individual on its own. Uh, that is still up to the candidate. That's up to the candidate, their message, their messaging, uh, how well they ran the campaign, uh, how well they got their message out there. Uh, but what graphic design does help with is it helps, you know, to put it simply as brand a candidate, but it makes that candidate and their message more recognized, more memorable. Uh, it has greater callback and allows uh, a voter or viewer or, you know, regular consumer to remember that candidate and their brand and their campaign a little easier. Uh, and so I noticed when certain uh, campaign branding stood out a little more, that they were a little more memorable, or I liked their merch uh, from their store so much that you know I made a donation to their campaign, or uh, I remembered a little bit more when I saw maybe a yard sign out in you know, the wild, so to speak. Uh, that's when I started to notice it more in earnest, uh, but it really became more and more obvious when I was writing as a media strategist, I was writing these really, really dense 20-page reports You know, at, at the end of a campaign. So this is, uh, I remember in particular, it was after 2016 and after 2018. So after the 2016 general election and after the 2018 midterm elections, I was writing these really, really dense 20-page reports with enormous you know, paragraphs of text trying to outline the different ad performance based on topic or message or placement or platform. And I was writing these reports not wanting to write them, and I know that my supervisors did not want to read them because they're pretty dry. Yeah. And I also knew that the client really didn't want to read them either. They were expecting it. It was customary and it was expected to write these reports, but the client's really not going to – they're not interested or engaged in reading this report. Uh, it's something I have always loved, and I, just, I find them fascinating. They're really infographics, and they really – they became more popular in the 1990s. I would say they reached their peak by mid mid two thousands. I don't want to say late two thousands, um, but I still love infographics to this day. Yeah, it's, I do too. Yeah, it's just different ways to visualize cool, fun, interesting, or important pieces of information. Um, and as the amount of data and information that we, as a society and as a species, produce, it's becoming ever more critical to find ways to present that information, not even necessarily visualize it, but present that information in such a way that it is engaging, that it's not a slog to read through a 20-page report. It's mm -hmm. not a pain to, to create it, but instead to format this information in such a way that people, and it could just be a report, it could still just be blocks of text, but there are better ways to lay out that text. That's yeah. more inviting. It's more oh, interesting. Yeah. People see, oh, this looks like a well-designed report. And they may not think that, but they feel that. They get the sense that someone took the time to lay this information out in an interesting or unique or creative way that invites them a little bit deeper. Uh, and particularly in advertising, measuring bounce rate from websites, that's the rate that it's really the amount of time that someone lands on a website and then they switch to another web page. And in advertising, yeah. you know, the difference between a bounce rate of 
you know, three seconds versus five seconds. Oh, wow, that, that five seconds, that's really important. But yeah. for me in infographics, like I could spend, you know, minutes, hours looking at these infographics and I want to better understand what makes me want to spend more, t- more time with it, to consume that information over a longer period of time. Uh, and for me, that's, that's the trick. That's the whole, that's for me, that's the name of the ball game. Is how can I create format, layout, design information that we're not measuring the bounce rate from content in seconds, but minutes or hours. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the, that's really important. That's interesting. I think we need to better figure that out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Cause that's interesting. I've never actually, it's funny because I don't think anybody would like think, oh, I want to reach the goal of having the bounce rate at hours because that just like, that's such a, I guess, extreme goal. But I think that's really neat that you're thinking that way because any increase you have towards um, making people spend more time on your site, um, it's going to lead towards more return on investment. So it's Absolutely. it's better for yeah. the business. So I mean, that, that's very interesting though. I mean, people have a short attention span in general these days. So I still feel like that's a very lofty goal, but I just, I, I do find it very fascinating, you know, that you're thinking that long, like that well, far. <laughs> It's um, this is anecdotal, and I don't have the exact report that I'm pulling this information from, so feel free to correct me. Uh, I'm very likely wrong. Uh, but we think about how digital is, you know, so, so to speak, the way of the future, and that you know, print is dead. And, and I, I disagree with that fundamentally. And here's primarily the reason why: is we do measure bounce rates from websites in seconds. And I forgot what year this was or where I read this, but. Um, Although distribution and circulation of magazines, by and large, is still kind of going, it's it's on the trend downward, the fascinating thing is that uh, for someone who does read a magazine, the average amount of time that they spend reading it is somewhere in the ballpark of 45 minutes. And now even for me, thinking about like, what's the last thing I read or consumed that I spent 45 minutes consuming? Mm -hmm. That's, That's astounding. I can't really think of many things. But yeah, when I do read a magazine and think about now being more aware of the layout, how they assign the columns, what photography they employ, which typefaces they use, how do the cover look, where are the ad placements that it's not quite as obtrusive but still noticeable in the content itself, and thinking about how someone designed this magazine and how on average Americans will spend about 45 minutes, on average, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less, but on average 45 minutes with that magazine, and that's a piece of print, that's by and large relatively speaking compared to digital it's a very old technology and yet still people are spending a disproportionately large amount of time consuming it and there's a ton of value in that and i think that's really important that's very interesting i want to i want to look into that statistic because um i never heard that but it it really does make sense uh there's got to be something out there that people are still spending a lot of time doing i know when i was younger i used to spend a lot of time reading and i try to um, I've tried recently to like re-implement that habit and it felt really nice to like just sit and like read for 30 minutes. Yeah, there's there's almost a sense of serenity when you're not bouncing from post to post to post to post, you know, yeah. scrolling through Instagram or Twitter or even TikTok nowadays. But it, there's there's a sense of, of strange serenity when you can stay on one subject or one topic or one magazine or one page for more than just five seconds. Yeah. Um, it creates a continuity of thought that... I feel like we're seeing less and less. Yeah, and that type of thought, like, it helps foster creativity. So, like, with, you know, all of these devices that give us constant access to everything, it makes it hard for us to, like, have access to our brain because all that creativity is kind of being sucked by diverted attention on our phones. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and it's it's shifting from thought to thought. But yeah, when we're able to stick with it for just a little bit longer, really to sort of open new pathways for thought access. I know that sounds really strange, but that's the best way I can think of it, is that when you stay on the same subject, you're able to think about it a little longer, and as you think about it a little longer, it opens up more ideas, more thoughts about that piece of content versus going from thought one to thought two, thought three, and, and so on very rapidly. What if you were able to stick with thought one for 10 minutes? What might you come up with? How might you think about that same thought in different ways? Mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that really is creative thinking when you're able to stick with one idea. Think about it a little longer, a little longer, a little longer, and eventually it'll sort of evolve and change and take shape while still being on the same topic. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. We've got to work on our focusing muscles for sure in the modern society. Yes, and it's becoming more challenging every day. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Like, we kind of have to, like, distance ourselves from these these devices at certain points so that we can, like, tune it out. Yeah. Um, let me see. My next question. Um, if you could give advice to your 16-year-old self, what would it be? Uh, I mean, how much time do we have? So <laughs> uh, I think we have, like, five more minutes. Okay. Um, advice to my 16-year-old self. Uh, 16 year olds, oh my goodness, I was such an idiot at 16. Uh, one is you're not as cool as you think you are. Uh, not as cool as you think you are, but still have faith in your, in yourself. But for me, like in, in your integrity, that some of the things you think are your weakness are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was relatively self-conscious at 16. Um, I still am self-conscious today, but, uh, it's, it's important to sort of have faith in, who you are and what you believe and what you hold to be important. Uh, not everyone will, will agree with that and not everyone will think what you think is important is important, but uh, you are, as my grandmother has told me many times, that like you are your own best friend and you should love yourself more than you love anyone else, not in the sense of being selfish or self-centered. Um, being kind to yourself uh, is that when you are feeling down or you're feeling sad, uh, particularly in these pandemic times, um, it's best to be your number one advocate and be your coach in your own corner, uh, talking yourself up, talking yourself back into the game to keep fighting and to keep going at what you think is important. Um, and this this next part is, is sort of challenging, and I, I, I'm still trying to figure out where the line is. Uh, there are many things when I was 16 that as I got older, I didn't spend enough time with, and I quit prematurely. Yep, I've done uh, that too. <laughs> Go yeah, ahead. And it's really, so it's, it's difficult to know when something is quote a lost cause and you should stop pouring your energy and time into it, but I think that it's also equally important to understand when you haven't poured enough time or enough energy or enough commitment into something. Yep. I think it's really important to, you know, I before transferring to USF, I did spend a year at the Savannah College of Art and Design, and I transferred out after, it wasn't on the semester system, it was on the quarter system, but I, I basically spent the equivalent of my freshman year at SCAD, uh, and I didn't feel successful about halfway through. And in the second half, I put in the transfer papers and began to transfer out. But by the end of that year, I was seeing success. I was seeing, I was putting in the time and I was putting in the effort in. And my, my, I was, you know, succeeding more in my classes, my projects, the quality of my projects were showing improvement. But at that stage, it was too late. The transfer had already gone through and I was already transferring to a new school. Yeah. Uh, and as I look back on that, there are times where I wished I did not, I, I wish I had not quit prematurely, that I wish I could have recognized that it feels uncomfortable and it feels natural because I have not put the time or the effort into being successful. And then when I started to put in the time and effort, I started to see that success. So I think it's important to uh, recognize in yourself 
when you are not achieving your greatest potential, you're not putting in the time and effort to see this success you're looking to see. Like I mentioned earlier that I don't consider myself a fast learner, but I also recognize in myself that I'm an impatient learner. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's, you know, to sort of sum this up, it's important to have patience with yourself uh, and to uh, have patience with yourself and recognize your journey and honor your journey and recognize when, uh, despite your frustration in the success you're not seeing, it's important to see how you are succeeding and to see where you can put in more time and more effort. For growth. Uh, Growth. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I totally feel you. Alrighty, well, thank you so much, Sam. I really appreciated uh, connecting with you and having you on the podcast. Um, real quick before the recording ends, um, how can our listeners connect with you online? You have LinkedIn. I do have LinkedIn. I'm actually, uh, as this uh, program is, is sort of in the, the, the later stages, we are actually building our online presence now. Okay. Uh, okay. So my website is not live because I'm still in the process of building it, but. Uh, my website will be Sam Radens, R-A-D-S-A-N-R-A-D-U-N-S uh, dot com. Uh, so very soon my work will be live and you'll be able to see my work online. Uh, you can also interact with me on Instagram. Uh, I believe it's, uh, let me it real quick. Yes, it is Lord underscore Radens underscore 55. That's L-O-R-D underscore R-A-I-D-E-N-S underscore 55. I intentionally misspelled my name. Uh, it's a play on words for the character from uh, a certain Mortal Kombat game. Uh, okay. I don't want to don't want to give any more free advertising for for that uh, company <laughs> right now. But um, yeah, SamRavens.com, Lord underscore R A I D E N S underscore fifty five for Instagram. Also on LinkedIn, um, all that good stuff. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Sam. Really appreciate it. Uh, liked having you on the show, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. You as well, son. This is great talking with you. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye.